Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invites you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friends, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for... And for the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to those who had been invited. Come, everyone, now is ready. But they had all like begun to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go see it out. Please have me excused. And another said, I have brought five yoke of oxen, and I will go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the, master's, then the master of the home became, became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lame and of the city and bring in the poor, crippled, blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men shall be invited to taste my banquet. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, thank you for making your New Year's Eve, or a part of your New Year's Eve with us. Um, please bow your heads and pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray this morning that it would be made more precious to us than gold and sweeter to us than honey. Lord, please give us ears to hear and eyes to see your love for us in scripture. And we pray these things in the name of your risen son, Jesus Christ, amen. Um, well, I have a friend who worked at a company that was hiring a new executive, 
and she was invited to sit in on the group interview portion of the interview process because her team was answering directly to this position. So the way she tells it, um, she was sitting in this interview, the applicant comes in, he is dressed really nicely, he's really warm, has a firm handshake, and as the interview is kicking off, this guy clearly has the experience, the wherewithal, the personality that the company is looking for. And everything is going really well until one of the most common interview questions. So the person asking the question says, what is your greatest strength? And the applicant, in dead seriousness, says, my greatest strength is I have no pride. All right. So um, the company ends up hiring this person and firing him in less than a year. Because as it turns out, this applicant could not take correction. And what he started to do was he started to kind of badmouth the CEO behind his back and started trying to turn all of the employees against the CEO. And when he was confronted about it, he essentially said, you don't know what you're talking about. I haven't done anything wrong. And he storms out. Uh, he did not leave the company on good terms. And oftentimes, pride is obvious to everyone except the proud. So my friend said as soon as she heard this guy's answer to that question, all kinds of alarm bells and red flags started popping up in her head, as I'm sure they did in many of yours. Because it's a rule of thumb, if someone says they are not proud, there's a very good chance that they are. Because pride blinds us to itself. It often takes an outside perspective or event to reveal our own pride to us. And in the section of Luke that Roman and Felicity just read, Jesus is setting out to do just that. And here's the thing, having your pride exposed to you is scary. Um, and if you're feeling a little bit on edge this morning, uh, I want to encourage you that having your pride or, or your sin exposed to you is actually a really good thing because it's the first step to getting rid of it. Um, so if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at two things. Uh, the first thing we're going to look at is seek God's kingdom with humility. And the second thing we're going to look at is receive God's kingdom with humility. Uh, so let's look at the first thing, seek God's kingdom with humility. Um, so what has been happening leading up to where we just read in Luke 14? So Jesus has been on his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem, and along the way, he has been teaching, he's been healing, ministering to people, but the ultimate purpose of his trip is to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God had come. So Jesus arrives at this town, and the ruler of the Pharisees invites him in for a meal. Now at first, when you first read this, it might appear that this ruler of the Pharisees is being hospitable. It's kind of like inviting the guest preacher to come and eat at your house after church. That's not really what's going on. Um, this would be one of those uncomfortable post-church lunches. So throughout the Gospels, we see that the Pharisees invite Jesus to things really for the purpose of trying to trip him up. So immediately before what Roman and Felicity just read, the Pharisees did something pretty awful. What they had done was they planted a disabled person in the dining room to test Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, which he does. So to put things in perspective, the men that Jesus is eating lunch with are the kind of people who would use a person to try to prove a theological point. 
So this is not like a pleasant lunch. This, these are not pleasant people that Jesus is interacting with. And in light of that, before we actually read, look back at the first parable, I wanna point out Jesus' generosity towards these Pharisees. So remember, the Pharisees are very predictable. Um, they really only interact with Jesus in order to try to trap him in a bad argument or prove him wrong. And even though Jesus knew exactly what was in the Pharisees' hearts, he still accepted the invitation to lunch. Uh, Jesus loves his enemies. And Jesus is about to sit here and give them three whole parables about the good news of his kingdom in hopes that they might receive it. And this is the theme throughout these three parables. God is generous towards people. Jesus has a generous heart even towards his enemies. So let's look back at verses eight through 11. Jesus said, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this is the first of three parables um, that are along similar lines that get progressively clearer as Jesus teaches. And in this first parable, Jesus is encouraging the Pharisees to examine themselves. So while the Pharisees have been clamoring to get the best seat at the table, it's unlikely that any of them ever stopped and considered that they might not be worthy of the seat that they were trying to sit in. Um, Jesus is getting them to examine their hearts. Now before we go further, let's remember what a parable is. So a parable is meant to function as an analogy. It's supposed to illustrate a deeper truth about Christ and his kingdom than what is on the surface. And remember who the audience is, the Pharisees. These were religious leaders. They were who people would have looked up to in the synagogue as they were trying to live godly lives. So of all people, the Pharisees should have known what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. But time and time again, we see that they miss it. So what is it that the Pharisees think the kingdom of God is like? Well, it seems that they understood the kingdom of God to be a merit-based system. The more honor and privilege and influence you could get, the more righteous you would be before God. And that's pretty easy to understand because that's exactly how our world works. Um, for example, I saw something on social media recently. There's this guy that basically pretends to be his own personal assistant when he makes reservations. Okay, so that'd be like me calling up a restaurant and saying, hello, I'd like to make a reservation on behalf of Mr. Austin Watson. He will be coming at 6 p.m. Yeah, and this dude says that he gets the best service ever. The chef comes out and talks to him. The table is always ready for him. When he makes hotel reservations, he gets free champagne in the room. He gets a certificate to the spa. He gets treated like a king. Why is that? It's because having a personal assistant is a symbol of wealth. It's a symbol of status. When people hear from your personal assistant, they assume that you're pretty important and they treat you that way. And that's how our world works. And that's how the Pharisees assumed God's kingdom works. And Jesus knew what they believed which is why he began with this parable, 
to really throw them off? What if the kingdom of God is not about receiving the most honor from men? Now, before we go further, let's define some terms. So I'm going to mention the kingdom of God a lot. So what does that actually mean? Um, I'm borrowing from R.C. Sproul here. He defines the kingdom of God as the rule of Jesus Christ over everything. Now, to be clear, God has always reigned over everything. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about a time when God's promised savior, Jesus Christ, will come and make everything new, right, and perfect. That's what Christians call the consummated or the perfected kingdom of God. And that will happen when Jesus returns. But this consummated, perfected kingdom has already actually started to break in into our own age. That's why right before Jesus first appears in the Gospels, John the Baptist announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom had arrived. It's here today. So what does it mean for us then to seek the kingdom of God now that Christ has already established it? I think John Calvin said it best, and Brian actually uh, said this a couple weeks ago. John Calvin said, it's the duty of the church, that is Christians, to make the invisible kingdom of God visible. To seek God's kingdom is to seek to live in a way that is obedient to God. It's to make our relationships, our work, our finances, really every aspect of our lives look more like they will look when Jesus returns so that we and others can see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the beauty of his kingdom even here on earth. In light of this, are we as Christians seeking God's actual kingdom or are we like the Pharisees seeking our own version of God's kingdom? This is what I mean. One of the first steps to humility is allowing yourself to be taught. And God teaches us what his kingdom is and how we are to live in it. How often do we try to flip that around and tell God what his kingdom should be like? God has a design for his kingdom. And things go south really quick if we don't seek his kingdom according to that design. And what is God's design for his kingdom? What's well, a radical place? As Jesus said earlier, it's a kingdom that exalts the humble. It's a kingdom whose citizens love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbors as ourselves. And if we don't love God and our neighbor as we ought to, our actions can cause a lot of harm. But here's the thing, as someone once said, our actions stem from our beliefs. If we believe that we know better than how God tells us to live in scripture, it leads us to behavior that goes against God's design. It leads to rationalizing, excusing, and explaining away all types of sin because we say in our hearts, I know what the Bible says, but God didn't really mean that. Behavior issues are belief issues. They are pride issues. And pride is believing that I know better than God and rejecting what he's clearly told me in the Bible. Seeking God's kingdom with humility means that we must allow God to teach us what his kingdom is like. And he does that in his word through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to see. In spite of what they think, they are not actually living according to the kingdom of God. Instead, they are blinded by their pride and self-righteousness. Well, there's a column in the New York Times called Diagnosis, 
And basically it follows a patient and their medical team um, trying to figure out what's causing these mysterious symptoms. And I'll spare you the details, but a lot of times it's a parasite. Um, but sometimes, this is when it's really interesting, it's a common disease that is causing really strange symptoms, like something as common as the cold. And I think pride is kind of like that. It is a very common disease, but it manifests itself in a wide variety of symptoms. But here are a few symptoms. Um, now, there is such a thing as justified anger, but if you find yourself consistently impatient and lashing out against people on a daily basis, that's probably pride. That's pride reminding you that everyone else needs to yield to you and to your agenda. Or maybe less obvious, if you find yourself constantly feeling undervalued or shortchanged, that might also be pride telling you that others' opinions of you are the most important thing ever. Either way, pride is a lie that tells you that you are the most important thing in the universe. Well, if we're going to continue the medical analogy, we could also say that pride is antibiotic resistant. It's very hard to get rid of. You can't really wake up one morning and just decide you're not going to be proud anymore. You need more effective medicine than to just try harder. And part of living as a Christian in God's kingdom is something called sanctification. And this is the process of God transforming us through the power of his Holy Spirit to look more like Jesus. And sanctification is really strange because it's not something that we can do on our own at all. And yet, God still uses us to play an active role in our own sanctification. And one of the ways he does this is by calling us to do the good things that he has set out for us to do. For example, in verses 12 through 14, Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So here Jesus is giving us better medicine for pride. It's generosity. To really live as citizens of God's kingdom is to live generously. And I said earlier that what you believe shapes how you behave, but at the same time, your actions can actually shape your beliefs. And practicing generosity kills pride. If you feel convicted of your pride, and if you've confessed it to God but you're not sure what to do next, try generosity. Give of your time, money, and talents in a way that is costly. Or if you're already practicing generosity but still feel like you're struggling with pride, a next step for you might be to allow yourself to receive generosity. So receiving generosity can be just as humbling, if not more so, than giving it. And when God's people are humbly giving and receiving generosity, that is making the kingdom, invisible kingdom visible. That's what it looks like to seek God's kingdom with humility. Of course, in order to seek God's kingdom, we must first actually receive it, which brings us to our second and final point, receive God's kingdom with humility. So after these first two parables, one of the house guests says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now this sentence is packed with irony, because for one thing, what is actually happening in this house right now? These Pharisees are sharing a meal with the Messiah, with God himself in the flesh, and they have no clue. 
They are eating bread in the kingdom as they speak. Another reason for the irony is that this man who said this is operating on an assumption that he and the others at the table will in fact be in the kingdom of God when they are resurrected. However, based on Jesus' response, we see that this guest is mistaken in his assumption. He assumes that because of his status or his heritage, he will receive the kingdom of God. Jesus' warning in this next parable is that these Pharisees, if they continue in their unrepentant pride, will actually be excluded from the kingdom of God. So if we look back at the parable, what does the master of the house do when none of the original guests show up? Jesus said, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now I want you to imagine that you are hosting a party. Actually, imagine that you are hosting your own daughter's wedding, okay? And you've had over 100 people RSVP. You've got the catering, the drinks, the cake. You've spent thousands of dollars on the venue, the DJ. Everything is set up. And people start texting you the day of the wedding telling you that they can't make it. Can you imagine how rude that would be? Can you imagine how awful you or your daughter would feel? See, the thing is, the the culture in the Pharisees' times wasn't that different. They would have picked up on the rudeness of not showing up to something that you RSVP'd to. Those original guests who had this banquet on the calendar for weeks don't show. And even worse, they all give these lame excuses of doing things that, let's be honest, they could have done before or after the banquet. So rather than sitting in an empty house with all this food and drink that will go to waste, the host sends his servant back out into the town and invites literally everyone else. So what is it that Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to see? This is how most commentators describe the analogy in this parable. First, the host of the banquet is God, and the servant is Jesus, and the banquet itself represents this consummated, perfected kingdom of God. After that, you have the three invited groups. These original invitees are the Pharisees who Jesus is talking to. Now, the Pharisees, as scholars of the Bible, should have recognized the kingdom of God when it arrived. They should have known who Jesus is. The Pharisees had access to scripture like Isaiah 35. So they should have known that when the Lord comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The Pharisees had just witnessed Jesus heal a lame man and they had doubtless heard stories of Jesus making the blind see and the deaf hear. So these Pharisees had the whole testimony of scripture screaming that Jesus is the Christ, yet they refused to receive him. So who is the second group invited to the banquet? The poor and crippled and blind and lame. Well, these are the poor and needy Jewish people who have already received Jesus as the promised Christ. And this is clear throughout Jesus' life. While the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews almost always refuse to accept Jesus and instead seek to discount him or eventually kill him. The poor, the blind, the disreputable, the disabled, 
These are the ones who eagerly receive Christ. Well, finally, the host of the banquet invites anyone else who is willing to come. And most commentators agree that this group represents the Gentiles. That is, those who were not ethnically Jewish and those who had not grown up with God's covenant promises in Scripture. And the crazy thing is, this third group represents the vast majority of God's people, the church, since Jesus' ascension. What that means is Jesus found most of us in the streets. So clearly, the kingdom of God is nothing like what the Pharisees had in mind. And this is Jesus' words to the Pharisees, if they will hear it. Inclusion in the kingdom of God is not about heritage. It's about humility. To borrow from another parable, those who don't see their illness will not seek out a physician. Those who don't have the humility to realize their need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, who suffered the ultimate humiliation for the sake of his people's sins, those who proudly think that they are good based on their own heritage or doing, will not taste the banquet. They will not receive the kingdom of God at the resurrection. They will be forever separated from it. Even in this harsh indictment, though, we still see Jesus' love for his enemies. Now, we don't know how this group of Pharisees responded, but there is a very famous Pharisee who, after he encountered Jesus, will go on to write about the quarter of the New Testament. If there's any hope for a Pharisee like the Apostle Paul, I'd say that there's hope for all of us. Now, remember, this parable is all about receiving God's kingdom with humility. So I do want to look at a little bit more what that looks like in our own lives. For those of us here who have not yet received God's kingdom, that is, for those who have not yet received Christ as Lord, what does it mean to receive Christ? I used to think that being a Christian meant to stop doing bad and start doing good, and that would make Jesus proud of me. And that false belief has trapped many people on a moral treadmill of trying to win God's approval. On the flip side, the same belief has turned many people away from Christ. Because why be a Christian if Christians can't live up to their own standards? At least I own my mistakes. Why would I need someone else telling me what to do? Well, if you identify with either of those camps, this is Jesus' invitation to you this morning. Receive him and his kingdom. If you are trying to earn God's love by living right, and you keep getting plunged into despair every time that doesn't work, stop and receive Jesus instead. If you think that you are good enough on your own, stop and receive Jesus instead because you can't earn God's love and you can't even make yourself a good person. And this is the great news of the gospel. You don't have to. Jesus is inviting you to humbly receive his kingdom because you are spiritually poor. You are spiritually crippled. You are spiritually blind. And apart from Jesus Christ, we all are. If you want to finally receive peace and rest, receive Jesus Christ. Humbly receive God's kingdom. And what about those of us who have already received the kingdom of God with humility? I think the call this morning is for us to remember how we received it. We did not receive God's kingdom because we earned it. We did not receive God's kingdom because we were entitled to it. We received God's kingdom because God himself gave us eyes to see our need for Jesus's precious blood. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You received God's kingdom because of Jesus' humility. You received God's kingdom because of God's generosity. Even though you were spiritually helpless, Jesus called you in from the streets of the city and he sat you down at his communion table. So for everyone here this morning, receive God's kingdom. Jesus is not just inviting you to freedom from sin and death, although he is. He is inviting you to his great banquet. He's inviting you to his feast. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for the love that you have shown us in your son's life, death, and resurrection. Lord, I pray that all of us this morning would continue to seek his kingdom or receive his kingdom. Lord, I ask these things in the name of your risen son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.